There you go. Most people don't like me unmuting, but there you go. Great to see everybody tonight. Uh, if you've got your Bibles there, hang on them. Uh, get them open again to uh, Philippians. That would be good on the uh, back of the outline here. Uh, you've got an outline. Uh, you've got an outline of the talk. Uh, I want to thank the uh, people who took me at my word last week and drew a picture of me while I was speaking. I really, uh, you know, I didn't know anybody listened at all. But there you go. Two people listened last week. They actually drew a picture of me while I was speaking. So thank you to those ones. If you want to see those pictures, I have them in my bag tonight. I can show you a little later. Um, let's pray as we look at Philippians together tonight. Heavenly Father, you are a God who wants to be known, has made yourself known, and as we open your word tonight, we can know you for who you are. So please uh, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us wills to obey. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, can I say that there are some scary words for me in today's passage? Uh, Work out. Have you noticed that there? Now, I know that some of you probably think I'm a fine physical specimen in no need of a workout, uh, but can I say that neither my wife uh, nor my children would agree with you, and the reason I know that is because they, well, they tell me often, uh, especially my children. But in recent times, I have been making more of an attempt to do some exercise, and it's reminded me that getting fit, uh, maintaining a healthy body takes hard work. Uh, it's time-consuming. There can be body soreness, there can be tiredness. Being fit and healthy doesn't come easy. You've got to work at it. You don't look like Cooper Ingram purely because of your genes. You've got to work at it. Is that right, mate? Um, anyway, and when people who look like Cooper tell me that I really ought to work out a bit, do some exercise, I generally like to point them to one of my favourite verses in all the Scripture, where the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 7 and 8, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Well, one of my favourite verses, but here's the point really. Achieving a healthy spiritual life is similar to achieving a healthy physical life. Both require training, strenuous time and effort. Uh, I was chatting with a fellow Christian just a little while ago and he confessed to me that he didn't feel like he had grown much as a Christian for quite a long time. And I'm guessing he's not, not alone. Uh, why do many Christians at times feel like their Christian life is stagnating? Perhaps we feel defeated by some particular sin. Uh, maybe we find ourselves lacking in motivation to get along to growth group. Uh, maybe we, we lack the desire or energy to serve others. Perhaps reading our Bible and praying just doesn't seem worth the time or effort. Now, why do some Christians never seem to make progress? You know, I think Paul has something to say about that in this passage tonight. Uh, gyms, personal trainers, boot camps, running clubs, bicycle clubs, uh, they're everywhere now with people invested in working out to keep their physical condition in good shape. Now, we, we know, don't we, that a healthy physical life doesn't happen without investing in it working on it, and it's only of some value. So why would we expect to have a healthy, vital, joyful Christian life without truly investing in it? The Christian life truly is a workout, and it should be, and if it's not for you, then it's likely that your spiritual muscles are in atrophy. That is, they're weakening and wasting away. You may be in danger of spiritual malfunction. That is not what God wants for us. 
Uh, and this passage, I think, makes that crystal clear. I, I wonder if you remember the, the key thing, the most important thing that Paul asked of the Philippian church in last week's passage. Remember, the one thing that Paul wanted the Philippians was, a thought of the Philippians was that their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We saw it back in chapter 1, verse 27. Now, the challenge to worthy living actually continues in the passage before us today. I think it's worth noting uh, that Paul is fleshing out that one phrase of living in a, a life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's fleshing it out right through to the end of chapter 2. And so it might be worth a quick recap before we move on. Because Paul points out a number of things that the challenge to worthy living actually entails. So back in chapter 1, verse 27 to 30, uh, the challenge to worthy living, well, there he encourages them to stand firm in the face of opposition, that is, striving together for the gospel without being afraid of opposition. And then the challenge to worthy living in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, uh, he, there he makes an appeal for a common mind. How? Well, he says we are to have the same mind as that of Christ in verse 2 of chapter 2. And then in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, the challenge to worthy living, well, he draws our attention to the example of Christ crucified as the supreme model of being other person-centred. And then today, finally, he continues the call to worthy living in verses 12 to 18 with the challenge to work out our salvation. Now, have a look at what he says there in, in verse 12. Now, chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, at first, Paul's command here sounds a little bit wrong to our evangelical Christian ears. We're not saved by works we do, but by faith in Christ. Uh, it's not new for me to say that there's nothing that we can do that would enable us to earn our salvation, but it's always worth a reminder, isn't it? Our salvation is all. That is completely and utterly the work of God. He sought us out. He sent his son who willingly bore our punishment and shame on the cross. He offers us forgiveness and mercy. He chose us and calls us to be his children. He declares us to be in the right with him. And so the only way that we can escape God's righteous anger and punishment for our sin, that is the only way that we can actually be saved, is by believing that he has done it all, everything. Everything that is needed for us to be in the right with God, he has done through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so therefore, it is by faith alone, that is by trusting in Jesus only, that we are saved. Now, perhaps that's news to you. Perhaps you'd like to find out more about that. I'd love to talk to you if you would love to do that, but you could probably talk to almost anybody here and ask them that question. But Paul understands this. In fact, he's already made it clear earlier in this letter that it's God who begins the good work in us and it's God who brings it to completion. And so what does he mean then in working out our own salvation? Well, let's first, uh, first let me point out one thing it can't mean. It can't mean that God saves you and welcomes you into his kingdom, but then you have got to work hard to stay in his kingdom, to stay saved. That's not possible, given that it's God who begins and who ends his good work of salvation in us. It's his work from beginning to end. 
We don't, we don't fall in and out of God's kingdom, in and out of salvation, depending on what kind of day we've had or how good or bad we think we're going in our Christian life. So many people, I think, live stunted Christian lives because of this particular error in thinking. There was a time in my own life when I used to spend more time worrying about whether I was in or out of God's kingdom because of my constant failures rather than rejoicing that my salvation is secure so that I can give my attention to living in a manner that is worthy of Christ. And so what does he mean when he says that we are to work out our salvation? Well, can I say, the way that it's written is, in English, is a little confusing. It's actually better to say something like, instead of work out your own salvation, to outwork your salvation, your own salvation. Work out how your salvation operates in every day. What are the outworkings of being saved? It's not let go and let God, it's work out with God. And Paul makes it clear that to live a life that is worthy of Christ requires hard work. The idea here is of continuous, strenuous effort. If we're, to, if we're going to live God-honouring, Christ-worthy Christian lives, then we can't just kind of sit back and think it will happen all by itself. We have to work at it. We have to put in the hard yards of knowing what pleases God and then working hard at doing it. But notice what he goes on to say in verse 13. Uh, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, verse 13, for or because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That is, the incentive for us to work is precisely because God is at work in us. That's our incentive. He is at work in us at the level of our hearts and minds and wills and our actions to achieve his good purposes. He's not just interested in our conversion. He's interested in our entire lives lived to his glory. It's the reason, reason we shouldn't actually lose heart and give up when we fail, even if we do it over and over again. Because God won't give up on us. And so we need to draw encouragement from that and persevere. I, I think it's the same with physical exercise, isn't it? Uh, there are times when we don't feel like going for a run or we don't feel like getting up early to have a swim before work or... We're tired and the body's a bit sore. But we know that if we keep at it, things will improve. We can be even more certain in our Christian lives that we will grow more like Christ as we keep at trusting Jesus and living his way, not giving up, not being lazy. Why? Well, because God is at work in us, guaranteeing to bring about his good purposes in us. However, the reason it's with fear and trembling here, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, is because we know that this Jesus, who humbled himself to be put to death for our salvation, has now been exalted to unequaled glory and power as the Lord of the universe. And because the time is coming when every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess him as the Lord. See, the first time that Jesus came, he came as our saviour. And and now is the time for us to recognise that reality. The next time he comes, it will be as our Lord and our judge. But as Christians, we don't wait until then. We bow to him as Lord in our lives now. So instead of bowing to, well, maybe our comfort or our security or our happiness 
or our success or our status. I mean, all those things want us to bow to them. Instead, we bow to Jesus as our Lord. And so the question that remains is, how? How do we go about working out our salvation? And the answer to that question for this passage is that we go about working out our salvation the same way as Christ did, by other person-centeredness. I mean, Christ's whole manner of life was for the sake of others. That is, he didn't demand his rights. He didn't stand with pride on his credentials as a means to secure our adoration or obedience. He didn't enforce his authority. He came to serve us. He didn't insist on his own interests. He humbly operated in our best interests. If we're to work out our salvation by other person-centeredness, then it makes sense of what Paul says next. Look at verse 14. He goes on and he says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. It's staggering, isn't it, that God's people are prone to grumbling even after all that he has done for us. But it's not new, is it? We saw it in our Old Testament reading of Exodus after God had rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. Barely a month has passed and they're grumbling and complaining at Moses about food and water. In reality, God says, it's actually not you they're grumbling at about Moses, it's me. After the incredible things that God has done for them in rescuing them, and yet when they don't immediately get what they want, they grumble and complain. And the idea here is of selfish complaining, of unbalanced criticism in small matters, of impatience when we don't understand something, or of an unwillingness to be helpful. And it takes place both in our thought life, what we think about someone or something, but our grumbling and questioning is also often expressed outwardly, even if it's only to those who are close to us. The grumbling and questioning is what we end up doing when we're not working out our salvation with fear and trembling. When Paul says that we shouldn't do it, it actually makes perfect sense. That is, if we really are to be other person-centred. The grumbling and questioning normally surface when we're discontent, when things aren't going our way. In, in fact, self-centeredness is normally the root cause of this kind of questioning and grumbling. But what we're called to do, or to be, is other person-centred. Now, I'm convinced that uh, this is one of the hardest areas of life to be blameless and innocent children of God. I mean, generally, Christians know it's wrong to behave like this, but instead of repenting, that is, instead of turning away from our behaviour and asking God's forgiveness, we actually repress our behaviour. So in other words, we, we hold back our outward grumbling, except perhaps to a spouse or a close friend. We repress our feelings, but we don't repent. We still harbour those complaints and criticisms and impatience in our thought life. And the problem is... Our negative thought life still twists and distorts us and eventually our increasing discontent will bubble over into our outward expression. 
And so we start making accusations. We gossip or put people down. We grumble. And perhaps we start to make excuses for not turning up to something or being involved. We take the high ground and and quickly find fault but never actually deal with things as we should as Christians. And the disturbing result is that we end up looking more like this crooked and twisted generation rather than standing out as lights in the midst of it. See, our manner of life at that point is unworthy of the gospel of Christ. We need to work out our salvation the same way as Jesus did. That is, by being other person-centred. And if the Philippians weren't sure what that would look like, then Paul here gives them an example of two shining lights. Uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus are examples of worthy Christian partners. Let's just pick it up there in verse 19. He says that, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Now, what a great commendation Paul gives here to Timothy. I have no one like him, says Paul. Now, he doesn't mean that there's uh, no other godly people around Paul. But Timothy sets the standard high when it comes to other person-centeredness. Timothy looks out for Christ's interests, not his own. And his genuine interest in the welfare of the Philippians actually amounts to a genuine interest in Christ. Timothy, notice, has learnt his attitude from Paul, who is, if you like, the patron saint of, of one who thinks correctly about himself. He had served Paul in gospel ministry like a son in the family business. But even more importantly, Timothy was a follower of Christ who humbled himself for the sake of others. The other person that Paul draws the Philippians' attention to here is their own leader, Epaphroditus. Uh, Look at verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honour such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, Paul has uh, great affection for Epaphroditus here, doesn't he? He calls him a brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier. As an expression of their, their partnership, the Philippians had not only sent money to Paul, but they'd also sent to them their pastor to minister to any of Paul's needs and also with Paul in the cause of the gospel. And in doing so, Epaphroditus had gambled his life. He exposed his own life to danger for the sake of being with Paul. That is, he was willing to die for the work of Christ. And even though he did nearly die, his concern wasn't for himself. He was more concerned that the Philippian Christians back home had heard about it, and his concern is that they would be concerned for him. Honour such men, Paul says. And what is it about these men that we're to honour? Well, 
They are concrete, visible examples of what Paul taught. That is, as we saw back in chapter 2, verse 7, they are all like Jesus, who made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself. I mean, there's no church called St. Epaphroditus, at least not one that I'm aware of. Uh, he and Timothy are, and Paul are all examples of humble servants who are other people-centered. They reach for the towel, not for the top. See, how is your manner of life honoring the gospel of Jesus Christ? How is your manner of life furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you letting your light shine by your other person-centeredness in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation? You know, imitation is the way that we learn most things in life, uh, whether it's the Australian accent or some sporting ability, even uh, much of our behaviour is learnt. That's why parents, for example, are often concerned about who their kids hang out with. Uh, They want them to be influenced by positive role models. And as our kids get older, um, parental influence diminishes, uh, peer influence increases, and if a teenager hangs out with selfish arrogant, violent, lazy peers, then the odds increase that they will develop similar attitudes. If Paul has just held up Epaphroditus and Timothy, as well as himself and ultimately Christ, as shining lights whom the Philippians would do well to imitate if they are to let their own light shine. See, who are you going to follow? Who are you going to learn the Christian life from? given that much of it is modelled to us. Now, of course, Paul and the Lord Jesus himself are our best and foremost examples. However, can you identify any shining lights among us here at Wild Street that you can learn from? Because I want to suggest that there are many here whom we can benefit from seeing their example. And while I could give names, they probably wouldn't want me to do that, but this is the kind of people that you're looking at. Are they the people who put their own needs aside for the sake of the gospel? Are they flexible for the sake of the gospel? Are they generous with their time for the sake of the gospel? Are they generous with their money for the sake of the gospel? Are they peacemakers for the sake of the gospel? Do they help without being asked? Are they interested in the well-being of others? Are they humble? Are they too busy asking after others rather than offended that no one has asked after them? Are they doing good for others spiritually? See, these are the kind of people to look out for, to honour and to follow as they follow Christ. Imagine the impact on our community if we all committed ourselves to looking out for the interests of Christ, to being other person-centred. See, we do that we really will shine like lights in this crooked and twisted generation. But if we thought Paul simply wanted us to knuckle down and try harder, then actually that would be the wrong outcome that we're looking for in this passage. Yes, working out your salvation or living a worthy Christian life does require continuous, strenuous effort until the day you die or until Jesus Christ returns. It's wise, can I just say, it's wise to read your Bible every day so that God can be speaking to you and for you to be speaking to him every day in prayer. I mean, make it a daily habit 
that is more important than any exercise routine you may have set up. Read good Christian books. There are bad ones, so check if you're not sure. Meet up with someone to read the Bible together and spur each other on in your Christian life. And prepare for growth group each week. Not only so that you get more out of it, but also because you'll be helping others as well. But remember this, you are God's workmanship. If you're a Christian, it's, it's because God began that good work in you. And he is actively engaged in completing what he has started in you. But if you belong to Christ, you need to be more than, an, than a spectator at an event. You've got to get off the bench, get yourself into the game. What an investment Jesus made in the building of his church. What investment have I made? Well, let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Because of him, Father, we, are, we have been saved. We are a part of your kingdom. We have an eternal future that can never be taken away from us. And right now, you have given us work to do, to grow in our knowledge of you and our love for you, become more and more like you as we live lives of other person-centeredness. So we ask for your help. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue to pray.